This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. It's my pleasure to welcome Namwali Serpel to Story Hour. Some of you have taken courses taught by her in the English department, so you know her as a scholar of modern American and British literature. She has a doctorate from Harvard, and her interests include critical theory and narrative and the novel. Her current research is in the field of contemporary fiction, in the field of contemporary fiction concerns the relationship between reading, uncertainty, and ethics. But she's here tonight in her other incarnation as a prize-winning fiction writer. Her first published story, Mzungu, appeared in the journal Kalalu. The story was nominated for the Kane Prize for African Writing in 2010 and included in the Kane Prize anthology. Alice Siebold selected the story to be included in Best American Short Stories 2009. The protagonist, Mzungu, is a nine-year-old girl named Isabella, or Isa, who, as the story begins, is negotiating, as she often does, a boozy party thrown by her expatriate parents in Lusaka, Zambia. Over the course of the party, Isa confronts birth and death, the estrangement between her parents and her own aloneness. In a review, Nilika Jaiwa. Jayawardani wrote, Serpel has captured the near still life of expatriate life, replete with pool, sunburn, cigarettes and beer bottles, and parental oblivion. A servant tells Isa that the Swahili word mzungu means ghost, and it's in the understanding of this world that Isa begins to comprehend the realities of race and class. In 2011, Namwali was one of the of six women selected for the prestigious Rona Jaffe Foundation's Writers Awards, a program that identifies and supports women writers of exceptional talent. She used the prize to take a semester off and travel to Zambia, where she was born and lived until she moved with her parents to the United States in 1989. She is currently working on a novel, an epic set over the course of the last century, about three Zambian families, black, white, brown, caught in a cycle of desire and retribution. Please join me in welcoming Namali Serpel. Thank you so much, Melanie, and thank you to Beverly as well for inviting me, and thank you all for coming. I'm going to start with a short story that I published in Tin House uh, magazine last year in their Weird Science issue, and the title is Bottoms Up. One, this would never have happened if it weren't for herpes. The other ones didn't bother us as much. Gonorrhea, chlamydia, hepatitis, syphilis. They sounded too archaic, too exotic to be a direct threat. They were reassuringly difficult to spell. Not herpes. Herpes is not complex. We met through our cleaner. Her name was Felicia, Maybe. We were never completely sure of this at the time, and later we disagreed about whether she was from Haiti or the Dominican Republic. Neither of us ever actually met her. She had put up a flyer advertising cleaning services in the apartment building where we both lived. Her low rates appealed to us. We needed a cleaner to come in several times a week. We rang her up separately. We hired her, respectively. She was very good at first, precise, invisible. We gave her spare keys and tipped her generously. Then one day, she mixed up our laundry. We each of us found a pair of mismatched socks. It was a small mistake. They were the same kind of sock. They were mismatched only in size, not color or pattern. Our two pairs of blue argyle socks had traded one sock. We each called Felicia and left messages. 
She called back, sounding afraid, saying that she knew exactly who had whose sock. It was the first we'd ever heard of each other, and that she would fix it. Having reunited the matching socks, she made another mistake. She misdelivered the pairs. What am I supposed to do with these, I said to myself as I unrolled my sock knot to find perfectly matched socks that were nevertheless the wrong size. I called Felicia, and I fired her. When I saw him in the elevator that Sunday afternoon, it was obvious. We were both carrying laundry baskets, we were both wearing sandals and argyle socks. The heels of the two short socks were squinched on the top of my feet like burst blisters. The heels of his two long socks protruded like new ankle bones. Hello, we ventured tentatively. It took us a moment to confess our suspicions, though we both knew the second I stepped into the elevator. The fact that we took the time to confirm what we both already knew was outrageously erotic. Later, in bed, we confessed how erotic the whole thing had been, our words tripping over each other, then falling in step as we giggled and sighed to a stop. Apart from sock size, it was amazing how well-matched we were. Education, hair, politics, food, sex, fear. It was like glancing out of a window and being surprised to see yourself, the window actually a mirror. That we had met without the intervention of a database or a mastermind was remarkable. We raved about it. Soon we moved in together into a larger apartment. There was more mess, more dirt, but we cleaned as a pair, and four hands are better than two. There was no real reason to suspect that either of us had herpes. We had both spent a great deal of time making doctors speak slowly so we could understand in great detail all of the tests we had asked them to perform. We each had a clean bill a clean bill of health. But herpes, so simple it can be transmitted across glass and porcelain, herpes became a source of tension between us. Herpes is forever. There are two kinds, and they are both forever. Our sex became so clean, so protected, we barely made contact. It was still erotic, maybe more so. The puzzle grew elaborate. Could we have sex without touching at all? We went through prophylactics like hand sanitizer, it was a little like arts and crafts, but with more rubber. It's incredible what a mess trying not to make a mess can make. We discovered the machine online. It came in the mail in a large cardboard box that dribbled packing material and styrofoam peanuts the color of scalp. By the time we had broken the box down and wrapped twine around it for recycling, bagged the peanuts, and vacuumed and mopped the floor, it was late. We went to sleep, two feet of pristine sheet between us. In the stillness of dawn, light smearing the walls, we tried the touchy-feely for the first time. The machine was elegant. The main component was a heavy black panel that we mounted on the wall above the bed. It was the size of a large headboard, its vertical edges curving in towards us. We plugged it in. There was a hum, then a silence like a pinprick. A translucent hologram flickered alive in the empty space in front of the panel. It was life-sized and kneeling. It smiled, its lips glitching as the specks adjusted. It lifted an arm and pointed between us. Bottoms up, it said coyly. Then it froze, awaiting instruction while we fell about in our underwear laughing. For bot, as I named it, to work, we needed to slather our bodies with a thin, clear gel from a small, unlabeled bottle. It took getting used to, though we both had plenty of experience with comprehensive sunscreen coverage, this gel reacted to rays that came out of the curved black panel. They streamed right through the hologram, as if sparking from Bot's chest. I could see the rays on my skin, 
a spitting white brightness not unlike the lasers that cut steel in action movies. Rays of light, rays of heat, they seemed to be both, but something else, too. When the rays touched the gel, they made a warm purring on the skin, as if the human touch had been digitized to ideal consistency and pressure, the touch of the perfect masseuse, or of Jesus. On the back of the panel was a keypad that we used to program it. Our first specification was that when he reached his hand toward the image of thought, the touchy-feely would send the touching rays to the same spot on my body. I had to face the panel at a certain angle. It took a while to get it right. But then we got it exactly right. He touched bot, bot touched me, and the transitive property fluoresced around us until the blaze of midday tempered the electric light. The other component of the touchy-feely consisted of two cylindrical objects joined by a long black cord, a dildo and a sort of sheath. Also designed for the transitive property, they were custom-made to ensure we would never have to touch again. That first day, he and I forgot all about it. We didn't even open the black box it came in. Two. Bot. Because of what you said that first day, that pervy pun bottoms up, you'll always be bot to me. He called you Rob. While this didn't bother me exactly, it jarred. I had met the real you, and your name was Bot, not Rob. I had been home for work, from work for a month because I had a full body rash. It was awful. My doctor said it was stress. It was already self-perpetuating, my stress about the rash extending its stay, and knowing my hypochondria was making me sick just made me sicker. It creeped me out severely. Him too. No chance of sex, not even with the machine. He began to work late. I stayed home, bored, antsy, trying not to scratch the itch. I was on meds for the rash and the anxiety and all the usual stuff. Things were in conflict in my body. The rash worsened and bettered at random, changing color like the sea. It had ebbed somewhat, the bumps flattening to a purple flush in the skin the, the day I decided to turn you on. The touchy-feely out of use had become an unassuming headboard, but as I dusted the bedside table that day, my shoulder grazed the slippy black panel, my skin cast a pale shadow on it, and I remembered. On a whim, still grumpy with sickness, I plugged it in. There was the hum, then the pinprick silence. You flickered alive. It was like cursing the traffic while driving to meet an old friend at the airport, and then getting there and seeing him come out of customs with a blank searching look and suddenly realizing how much you've missed him. Bot, you haven't changed a bit, I said appraisingly, my hands on my hips. Bottoms up, you smiled and pointed at me. The sex was insane. It was like sex with yourself dissolved with sex in some, dissolved in sex with someone else, the way purification tablets cast clarity into muddy water. Even the gel on my skin felt clean. I had opened a window and the white curtain floated into the room as a breeze moved across my skin, chilling it where the gel slicked. The lingering itch of my rash was like static beneath the pleasure. Oh, bot, you glowed and sparked, the touching rays shooting out through you, spraying light over us. After, the sheets were wet but still clean. I lay on my stomach, chin in my cupped hands, facing the shiny black panel. As the sounds of cars and trees outside the window hushed my thudding heart, I watched you kneel, then stretch. Billowy as the curtain, you came out of the machine and lay down with me. You gazed at me, and you smiled without a glitch. Bot, I said. Yes, you said. And then, with the bell-like voice of error tones, 
you began to tell me what to do, until he's here, you whispered, as the front door opened and the smell of him slunk in, crushingly familiar. Three. Things between him and me deteriorated completely when I went back to work. My rash had healed perfectly, and I wondered if it hadn't been caused by withdrawal from the gel. I began to slather it on in the morning just in case. He rolled his eyes and coughed and sneered that my co-workers would complain. I sniffed my arm and caught a whiff. Elm blossom, fresh-sprung mushrooms, salt. It cast you alive, Bot, slightly behind me and to the left. I couldn't catch you exactly, but you were there. We snuck around behind his back, each time an epiphany of form, all the things we could do within the constraints of his schedule. We learned to align ourselves with speed and efficiency, like dividing a number into a number, less left over every time. One day, I came home from work and found him on the floor in tears. He looked up and blurbled, I lost my job. I gave him a hand up, wincing. He put his arm around me and tried to bury his head in my left shoulder. I murmured my sorries, shifting him awkwardly. That night, he tried to have sex with me for the first time in ages. Every touch was acid in my bones. I thought I could hear them, my bones, but then I realized it was you, my darling, wretched bot, howling gall in my ear. I turned my back to him. Horribly, he misunderstood. I made him sleep on the couch after that. The bed was clean again. Hours. Furtive quickies with the door shut, quiet as light, at least at first. Soon enough, we lolled around in it, squealing without care as we grew experimental. I tried to find that component, that other component of the touchy-feely, but the black box was nowhere to be found. I anticipated those stolen moments with you, Bot, longed for them as I sat through yet another dull, overwrought meal with the roommate. He had taken up cooking in a fevered, sullen sort of way. He'd become unclean. Newfangled sauces polka-dotted the stove. Tendrils of vegetable peel infested the kitchen. He burned a risotto and was inconsolable. One evening, there was no pastiche dinner on the table when I came in through the front door, though the air still rankled with the mad spooks of truffle oil. He was in the bath, in the dark. What are we doing, I snapped. What are we doing, he mooed. I ignored him and turned to leave. I know what you're doing. With Rob, I see flashes under the door, he yelled. The next day, he was asleep on the couch when I left for work, and he was still there when I came home. As the week went on, suspicious odds and ends collected in the bedroom, a soiled tissue like a wilted flower, a wispy gray halo on the wall around an electrical outlet, a styrofoam peanut the color of scalp, a stain. I found him in the burnt, skew light of sunset. He was curled up on the living room floor, facing away from the door, shuddering. I stepped around the naked body, and I saw what he'd been up to. The sheath was still on, black against his pale thighs, the cord baroque with tangles. The other end had vanished into his mouth. He gazed up at me with plaintive, jawbreaker eyes. I sighed and dialed 911 on my cell as I went to fetch the kitchen gloves. The dildo had ended up halfway down his throat, which would have been impossible, they said, had it not been tapered, and had he not slicked his insides by drinking the slippery gel. The device I'd yanked from him was still on the floor when they arrived. A stretcher wheel got stuck on the cord as they rolled him out, one of the EMTs extracted it, handing it to me with a bored, hassled look. I looked at it in my hands, black and spittled, but as harmless now as a jump rope. I was dirty and tired. I mopped up, washed up, made my way to bed. The headboard was still on, a buzz with a thin vision, skipping like a disc, saying your name over and over, a techno love song, bot, bot, bot. 
I could see you out of the corner of my left eye, shaking your head. I turned to you with relief, but just before you fled, you took my cold hands in your lightning ones. You looked into my eyes, and you admonished me. So as writers, I think we always aspire to immortality, but when immortality is beyond reach, there's always zeitgeist. Um, yesterday, still puzzling over whether to read a sex robot story at a library in a university where I'm up for tenure, um, <laughs> my boyfriend sent me a link to a story online. The touchy-feely is real, he said, and I thought this is too serendipitous for me not to read the story. So this is from the website io9, which um, often publishes um, reviews of science fiction and of newfangled scientific ideas, and there's actually a review um, of the weird science issue of Tin House and the science fiction issue of The New Yorker, which both came out around the same time last year on this website. Um, but this particular link is called Internet Connected Sex Toys Let You Access Your Long Distance Partner. And it's essentially the second component of the touchy-feely, which I described. Um, uh, it's lovepals.com, and it, <laughs> um, they, they're, they're shipping out the, the Zeus for male, um, which is for a person placing their digits into an orifice, and Hera for female, which I think is like the worst Greek couple pairing, like the very dysfunctional um, <laughs> Greek gods to put um, as the names for these, um, but perhaps that's fitting. And it says, the devices will connect to the internet and inform each other of the other's speed and pressure. The speed sensor in Zeus will detect the speed of male action and send to Hera, the female toy. Hera will reflect and match Zeus's speed automatically. Hera, on her part, will sense the pressure inside the toy based on the female's reaction and then send that information to Zeus. Zeus's air pump will configure its tightness automatically based on the received signal. Um, and the, the article says, I think this is great, um, this sounds like old school teledildonics, which is a great word, um, but it opens up some interesting questions. Can and will these readings be recorded? Will you someday be able to play back the greatest long-distance sex you've had with someone even after you're no longer with them? Can you reconfigure the Love Pal system in order to have long-distance sex with multiple partners using a single device? And this final um, um, Point, which I think suits my story perfectly, and will it make for an incredible masturbatory aid, one that truly lets you have sex with yourself? So I'm very proud to have inspired <laughs> slash forecasted um, this new contraption. Um, I'm going to read next from, not actually from the novel that Melanie mentioned, which I'm debating whether to call uh, Breaking, which is a very sort of lovely, mellifluous um, kind of title that I came up with in probably 1996, um, uh, which is a, about these three generations of Zambian families, um, uh, or whether to call it Zambia, um, <laughs> uh, invoking not just um, the kind of current obsession with uh, dead beings, but also my novel's obsession with dead beings. Um, and you'll see that there are dead beings in what I'm about to read as well. But this is actually um, the novel that is complete. Um, I'm still researching Zambia. Um, this novel is in, a, in draft stage, um, and I've been revising it for the last few years. And it's been very influenced by my time uh, in Berkeley and in San Francisco. Um, so I thought I would read from that. And that the title of, of this um, novel is Furrow, 
Um, and I'm just going to read the first chapter of it, which is unfortunately not the part that's set in the Bay, but I think will give you um, a sense of um, the novel's style. And so this is the part one of the novel is um, the, entitled with just the letter C. Um, the name of um, the main character is C, which is short for Cassandra. And the epigraph is from Proust. Um, People do not die for us immediately, but remain bathed in a sort of aura of life, which bears no relation to true immortality, but through which they continue to occupy our thoughts in the same way as when they were alive. It is as though they were traveling abroad. Furrow. You swam into the furrow. You didn't know it because you were just below the surface of the water. Your face faced down. You felt the sky darken above you like a shadow passing, and when you came up to breathe, you were inside the furrow. Whirring sheets of water on either side of you topped with lacy foam. The waves spun taller and came to seem like walls, and the foam on the top sharpened up and came to seem like broken glass. Shard-trimmed walls on either side of you, the furrow spiraling, cleaving deeper. When C was twelve, her little brother drowned down. He was seven. She swam him to shore, his arms wrapped around her from behind, his chest against her back, his feet hitting her thighs. At first, his small heavy head was on her shoulder and she could hear him breathing in her ear, an occasional snort when the water came in. His head bounced against her and her shoulder ached. His hands were knotted at her collarbone and she held them there so he wouldn't let go and so that he wouldn't choke her. With her other hand, she pushed at the water. She swam him away from the furrow. She swam him to shore. They had gone to the beach for the day, just the two of them. This was permitted. There, this was their whole summer. He was a deep, nutty brown, a gangly creature, a good kid. He played so hard, as if play were work. She was too old to play, so she watched him play and helped sometimes. That day, she buried him for fun's sake. Together, they dug a shallow trench with cupped hands. The top sand was the color of cane sugar. The undersand was brown sugar. He lay down in the trench they'd made, and she packed the sand onto his body, pat-patting it over his hands and over his bony knees. Under the fluorescent sun, he lay as still as a wounded man on a stretcher. He asked her to cover his head with their hat, and she said, no, you'll suffocate. His hand flinched as if to cover it himself, but then he rem remembered that his hand was buried and should remain so. Too late, the mound of sand over his hand had grown a thin crack. He glanced at her. She pat-patted it flat. After a moment, he mouthed, Cover my head. She touched her sandy finger to his sandy cheek and said, Close your eyes, and she put the straw hat over his squinching face. She'd stolen the straw hat from a fruit vendor before he was born, while he was in the womb. C's pregnant mother had been buying a pear at a fruit stand in town, and the hat, been, hat had been rolling at the fruit vendor's feet like tumbleweed. It had beckoned to her, and so C picked it up and put it behind her back switching it quickly to the front of her belly when they turned to leave. Her mother didn't notice until a block later. She twisted C's earlobe till it stung, hissing, it's too late to give it back now, you little twit. Though they'd had the straw hat for many years, it was still too big for either of the children to wear. They used it for carrying things, its leather chin strap serving as a handle. Today, they'd used it to bring beach supplies. Now it swallowed his head completely. You're a dead Mexican, she, she said. Olay, he muffled. I mean, cowboy, she said. Ahoy. That's a sailor. Yeehaw? She didn't answer. She didn't laugh. 
She walked away from his buried body, staggered away through the sand pockets, bored but deeply satisfied that he would be surprised to find her gone when he lifted that dumb hat off his face. Her toes were already wet by the time he noticed she was gone. He leapt up and gangled his way toward her, yelling pell-mell, splashing past her into the water. All alone the world takes you in, reclaims you to its endless folding. There is death everywhere. Didn't you know? You knew. And what has that knowingness gotten you? The clouds came. The waves rose. The furrow ate him up. He was joyful in swimming. He was afraid. He wrapped his hands around her neck. She held his knuckles in her hand like a junk of bones. He dragged her back. She swam him to shore. About halfway to the beach, his head began to beat against her shoulder in an unreasonable way. This is what she thought, unreasonable, a word their father would say. She knew how to hold her breath and dive through the waves like their mother had taught them. But what about him? Did he remember to dive, to hold his breath? There was no breath in her to ask or remind him. She was so tired carrying him to shore like this on her back, dead weight. The wind whipped above them. She clutched his knuckles in one hand, pushed at the water with the other, rocking, his knees bumping the back of her, his head knocking against her shoulder in its unreasonable way. It made no sound, but oh, the bruises they'd found. Just then, or just before, she felt him soften against her, and something from inside him came inside her, in little waves, more and more ripples until it was done, and her insides felt full up. His body swept clean of him, hers suddenly filled to bursting. She swam like this, doubled, a body on her back, her fingers raw with clutching. Afterward, they left her in the bathtub for hours. The hot water was still, the air above it feverish. There were loud whispers and the sound of her mother crying beyond the bathroom door, which shuddered whenever another body entered the house through the front door below. The blow dryer lay on the bathroom floor, its shape like a head with the longest pout imaginable, its mouth kissing toward the strangle of her bathing suit, choked with sand on the floor. There was sand everywhere, eddies and broken clumps of it patterning the white tile. They left her in that bathroom for hours, to watch, it seemed, the steam percolate the air. She shivered off and on, goosebumps rose and subsided. She was wondering if they'd leave her in there forever, when he began to knock around inside her and stretch her, like she was just a sack, or the sand beneath which he'd been buried. She knew enough to be sad, but she'd never known this feeling, an inner stretch in every direction, the beginning of a yawn that never ended. They felt full up, her insides did. A vaulting motion took hold of her, like the shape of a dolphin's back, the same feeling that had carried them from water to shore. She inhaled and held her breath and slid into the water, down under, lay still, eyes open, slow in their blinking. The sloshing, sucking bathwater popped roundly into one ear than the other. Quiet down here, hollow. She closed her eyes. A boy made of sand crumbled up the edge of the bathtub, gathered its strength, and hovered like a shadow over the water. Clumps of sandy skin plopped through the surface and sunk down toward her, threatening to muddy her. She stayed under, eyes tight shut. She began to count. There was no clock, so she just had to trust herself to say the seconds slow enough. Feeling the cool water move over her skin, she pictured the electric alarm clock in her bedroom, its screen a black rectangle across which spindly green limbs formed segmented numbers. Two switched its leg from left to right and became three. Five grew a leg to make six. Eight lost a leg to make nine. It was getting harder to see the numbers clearly, but she could hear her blood thudding to the count. 13, 14, 28, 31. The numbers were speeding up, 
despite her will flashing behind her eyes, 53, 62, 86, 91, she startled up through the water and gasped, crashing into the stillness. The world was louder after the muffle below. Someone was knocking on the bathroom door. That was the thudding she'd heard, not her heart. The knob rattled and the door opened wide, then closed rapidly to a crack. Cool air rushed in with the sound of crying. She blinked around. Are you listening to me? Her father sounded angry. He would not come in. For several months now, he had not entered the bathroom when she was in there. He must have been knocking on the door for some time, telling her to get out, get downstairs. Coming, she mumbled as she launched herself up and out of the tub, skidding on the gritty tile, legs shaky. She'd stood up too quickly, and the black static of a head rush swarmed over her eyes and into her ears. Coming, she said louder, shaking her head to clear it. Okay, then. Her father's tone was soft now. Come down when you're ready. The rapid shift in his voice surprised her. Usually if he started angry, he stayed angry. She wrapped a thin, sandy towel around her body and combed her hair, wincing as the knots caught. Her face seemed different in the mirror, but not so much that she lingered to see how. She could look for changes later. Her eyes felt wrung, her lungs watery and hollow. Her arms ached as she gingerly put on shorts and a t-shirt, dirty ones from the laundry basket. She knew this would be permitted. What wouldn't be? She felt a kind of anticipation. She'd seen their eyes earlier. The corners of her mouth twitched unbearably. She'd been so brave. Just thinking the word made her, chest, made her chest expand. The feeling grew inside her like a soap bubble, delicate, iridescent colors sliding down its surface as it spun. Brave. She felt there must be comfort and admiration and also fear waiting for her downstairs. But those things were not waiting for her, not immediately at least. At the bottom of the stairs, her father waited for her. He stood there awkward and twitching, which is how he was at most social events, except this wasn't an event, not really, not yet. Her damp feet made brief silhouettes on the dark wood of the stairs as she descended. The sound of her mother crying in the kitchen grew louder with each step. Had her father cried too? She didn't ask, but she took the opportunity, special circumstances, to hug him when she reached the bottom of the, of the staircase. She felled her full weight against him, crushed her nose into his sternum, smelling first the tang of fried food, then the smell they all shared of the detergent their mother used, and finally the particular smell of her father, plain soap, hair oil, pine aftershave. She looked up at him and saw where his one-day bristle vanished darkly into an old scar under his chin. He seemed taken aback by the hug, but he recovered, separating their bodies carefully. He put his hand on her back and guided her into the dining room. A policewoman was sitting at the table. It's C, isn't it? Hello, the policewoman introduced herself. Why don't you sit down? Her father slunk back to the door and he leaned against it, his arms crossed high on his chest. C sat down across from the policewoman, her palms pressed against her bare knees. C, I need to ask some questions to file a report. C nodded. The window behind the policewoman rattled in the wind. Outside, the sky was still ringing itself, black twisted clouds. The policewoman opened a legal pad and C turned her hands over and looked at them. Her fingertips were still wrinkled. It always seemed strange to her that skin should grow crannied when too wet, while the ground gets that way when it is too dry, the ruts that carve into them when the sun bakes the water away. First, I'd like you to tell me what happened today at the beach. This is the story C told. This is the story they would pull from her a thousand times. Every time, everything about the story was the same. 
how they'd played and swam, how they always did this, every day they did this, they were allowed, how she had buried him and how he had run into the water ahead of her, how the wind had picked up, the waves had gotten big, and how sudden it all was, how she had seen him disappear into the water, and so she swam to him until he could wrap his arms around her from behind, and how she swam them to shore just until, and then, and then. She woke up on the beach, on her back, sputtering, her throat raw. She felt the water drag at her feet. The sky was still fuming, gunmetal clouds, thunder mumbling in a strangely consistent way. She was confused about how naked she was, her swimsuit tangled in the crevices of her body, the seaweed wrapping around her wrists, the grit of sand and salt disturbing her sense of her skin. She heard voices shouting, shouting faintly above the crashing water. Pain, the throbbing in her head and her shoulder, is what finally made her rise halfway up onto her elbows. She cleared the sand from the coves around her eyes. She couldn't get her bearings. She seemed to have washed up into some kind of inlet. There were black stones studying the smooth shore, a trail of them leading to a bristling cluster of rocks. She thought she could see her brother around the corner. When she squinted, she caught a glimpse of a flung form on the sand, naked and obscenely bent. The water tugged at it. Panic began to beat inside for her, for him, for her, for how apart they were. But exhaustion crowded into her body again, from the crown of her head to her neck and across her back. She dropped back to the ground and closed her eyes. She blinked them open when she heard the voices, a shout. She turned with effort onto her side and sputtered and retched. Water came out, lacy with saliva bubbles. It didn't hurt. It was a relief to see her own spit. She searched for the source of the voices but saw no one. She turned her gaze to where she had seen him, but now she could only see a single oblong object there, an arm, a leg. It might have been a tree limb. It was being dragged into the water, by the water, reclaimed. She managed to watch it until it disappeared, but she didn't move. She couldn't. When it was gone, she curled on her side and wrapped her arms around her knees, grit grinding grit, and shut her eyes again. The water crashed and retreated, talking to itself. A hoarse call, a sighing reply. When she opened her eyes again, there were three heads blocking the sky above her. One of the heads was a bizarre alien head, too round, she thought. The next thought when she recognized the shape was that if they'd found the straw hat, her brother must indeed be dead. Where's my brother, she said, but they looked at each other and shook their heads and shouted into the wind, which ate the words right out of their mouths. She tried again. She would say later that she asked the same question over and over, but maybe they didn't hear or maybe they didn't understand. Miming gestures of politeness, can I touch you here, expressed with delicate contact a questioning look, they lifted her up. She couldn't say how many people carried her, but it felt like it had started as three and ended up as one, sturdy leverage under her shoulders and the backs of her knees. Then there was a tottering weighted momentum over the sand. Rain pattered her face and the wind galled. They put her in the back of a car. Her eyes flashed open when they asked where she lived and she saw the little light in the ceiling, which was a square moon in the thoughts that curled her head as they drove to the address she'd whispered. When they got to her house, she only knew it because she felt the cold come in when the car door opened. The policewoman asked if C needed a Kleenex, but no, C did not need a Kleenex. She asked if C was cold, but no, C was not cold. Then the woman asked her the strangest thing. C, do you know where your brother is? C blinked. Was this woman, pale and plump, in the navy and gold uniform that made her seem a badly wrapped gift, asking her about heaven? No. Where is she, the woman insisted. She must have meant his dead body. The beach? The policewoman looked over C's shoulder. C glanced back, too, but her father said nothing. When she turned, the policewoman was looking at her legal pad. C concentrated. The kitchen? 
The policewoman looked up, tilted her head, and frowned, an interested puppy. C shrugged. There wasn't really room for the body anywhere but the kitchen. Despite the special circumstances, they wouldn't have put his body in the living room. He must be lying on the kitchen table. Maybe she thought this because whenever they came back from swimming at the beach, she and her brother never went in past the kitchen. They would come home, run up the outdoor steps, and into the kitchen straight to the fridge. They could sit and drink their Dr. Peppers at the kitchen table, but their mothers wouldn't let them go anywhere else in the house until they had gone back outside and blasted all the sand off their bodies with the garden hose. His hand was too small to hold the trigger back on the nozzle, so she, she would do herself first, quickly, efficiently. She lingered only on the nape of her neck because she'd get a rash there if she didn't. She was long past enjoying this process, but he had only just begun to grasp its pleasures, shrieking as he directed different parts of his body at the spray she aimed at him. His wobbling elbow, his stop hand, his hulaying bum, his tight-squinched face, which would eventually crack open with laughter, uncontrolled hiccups of it. Around them, light would fall. The sound of the crickets would swell to a ringing in the ears. The puddle they made gleamed, glass blade tips stubbling its surface. Eventually, the outdoor security light would spits and thunk to life. Under its green glow, they would wipe their feet dry on the steps and slump their way inside, just escaping the bugs, just in time for dinner. That wasn't how it had gone today, but she wondered for a second if they had washed his body with the hose, laying him down in the grass, squeezing the thick trigger, aiming at his closed eyes. Would a spray that strong leave dents in a dead body? He must be in the kitchen. She imagined him laid out on the table, his head where their father's plate should be. The kitchen, she said for the third time. The policewoman snapped her legal pad shut and stood. Let's go in and see then. She said it in a practical-sounding way, like it was the obvious thing to do. C nodded and melted off the chair the way she used to when she'd been younger and smaller and her feet had dangled. She walked toward her father, who opened the door, but the policewoman grabbed her shoulder hard to slow, to, to slow her down, then gentle to guide her. As they crossed the threshold, she could sense the adults exchanging a look over her head. She and the policewoman crossed the front door hallway and made their way into the kitchen without her father. The kitchen smelled like warm copper, old French fries. C's mother sat on a kitchen chair, her hands flat on the table while the rest of her shook clumsily. Her light brown hair covered her face. Mrs. Genoese, the neighbor, sat next to her, her hand on her back, stroking in a circle. C saw that her mother was not wearing shoes. The policewoman nodded at Mrs. Genoese, who nodded back and whispered into the hidden ear. C's mother looked up and stopped crying. She turned to C, but she did not look at C. Her eyes were trained on something past her. The fridge cleared its throat and hummed deeply. The wooden table was bare but for a single crumpled Kleenex, so crisp in its folds it looked like origami. Where's Wayne? C choked out suddenly, like a catch had released. C's mother looked at her now, really looked at her, and laughed. Thank you. So I guess I'll take questions for the next 10 minutes or so. So one of the things that happens, um, and I describe this as um, the rope of the story splitting in two and then joining back and becoming a lasso, endlessly tossed but catching nothing, because the story is the same up until the point that C arrives at home with the three strangers. But then C's mother says that the strangers... um, offered to go um, and help her find her son. They hadn't brought the little boy back with them. 
Um, and the strangers say, we'll, we'll help you go. And she says, no, 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 I'll go, I'll, I'll go find, go find my son. And she, they have a search, uh, there's a search party and they don't find anything. They don't find a body. C's mother becomes increasingly convinced that these strangers actually kidnapped her son. And because there's no body, there's no proof that he died. And this becomes essentially the tension between C and her mother as they try to mourn that she's, she's like, I saw him die. I saw the sea taken back. I felt him die on my back and I saw the sea reclaim him. And her mother um, doesn't believe that and starts an organization for missing children and devotes her life essentially to this, this quest. Uh, and then C, as an adult, um, meets a man in a coffee shop who bears a striking resemblance to her father and to what her brother would have looked like. And that starts, catapults this, the story into a whole different direction, which is, I will stop now, so I stop spoiling. <laughs> so you will all purchase it at some point <laughs> when it's finished. Yeah. Oh, um, <laughs> I, asked, I just gave, um, I just received back uh, feedback from my agent about, um, about it, and I think we're a couple of drafts away, so depending on how I can balance my academic writing and my creative writing, hopefully in the next couple of years. This is probably like the worst thing to say. Um, I think for most creative writing instructors would say, you know, start with a character, but I very rarely start with a character. I very often start with an image or um, an idea. Um, and this, again, is a terrible thing to say, but I often start with dreams. <laughs> so the beginning of this, the, um, uh, the girl holding a little boy on her back while she's swimming was a dream that I had um, about a month before I got my job at Berkeley, actually. So that's, I, that's idea came to me later. Um, and then I had another dream in Berkeley about the second half of the book. Um, generally, I, I try to get ideas without thinking too hard, because I do a lot of thinking. Um, and the touchy-feely wasn't really, a, that wasn't a dream, but it was, <laughs> it was a conversation that I, that I was having with someone um, who is extremely um, fastidious and nervous about diseases. Um, and uh, and we, I sort of was like, well, what if there were a machine and that sort of thing? Um, but then this, the particularities, particularities of the hologram came to me as I was waking up one day, so sort of in a dream state. Um, Not in my brain, but I think they I think they mutually inform each other. Um, I gave an interview once um, for uh, a magazine, and they asked me a similar question. And at the time, I was teaching the 45C, and I was teaching Jekyll and Hyde. And I was like, actually, Jekyll and Hyde is a really good image for how it feels. It's like they're they're in conversation, but I'm not party to it. You know? um, and uh, one of my favorite images from Jekyll and Hyde is. Um, hide scribbling marginalia in Jekyll's books, and I sort of feel like ooh, I sort of feel like that's definitely one of the things that um, I've I've found um, if I'm working on one or the other, they kind of mutually inform each other. But I try not to. I mean, I'm writing about uncertainty, and the, the thing that I most don't want is for the next question to be, "So, do you try to make your books uncertain?" <laughs> because I don't. I try not to be um, too contrived in that way. I just want the the form of the novel or the story to create itself um, as much as it can without meddling from my academic brain. 
I write for three hours at a time. When I'm doing academic work, I can do about five hours. But creative writing, I can do about three hours, about three days a week. If I try to do more than that, I feel despair. So I try not to do that. Um, when I'm teaching, I can do those three hours once a week on the weekend and without too much interference because generally I don't teach Fridays. On Saturday, I have enough space that I can go back to something. Um, in the summers, I alternate. So I'll work on academic writing for a, a month or a month and a half, and then I'll take a week off, and then I'll switch um, because, I, again, I don't want them to get too entangled. But I can't write every day. Very often, I need to take two or three days of utter boredom, like just not doing anything to feel any kind of spark. Um, so I'm, I definitely work more in, in intense bursts. And what I found is that of all the, all the best work I've done has been in like a 10-hour, you know, fugue state of some kind. Um, so the three-hour stretches are like my attempts to get better and to revise the things that I've written, but I'm definitely someone who works with a kind of um, rhythm of inspiration and fallow period inspiration. Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny because um, uh, Muzungu is about a young white girl growing up in Zambia, and I've had people ask me, um, so is this autobiographical? And I'm like, do you see me? <laughs> um, it's autobiographical to the extent that it, the um, incident that happens to her where someone calls her Muzungu for the first time and she feels called out as white for the first time happened to my father um, in villages in, in Zambia where... Um, people would hold up their babies to scare them because the, their babies had never seen a white person before. This is back in the, in the early days. Uh, you probably remember this. Um, but uh, in Bottoms Up, there's definitely, and I, I only um, hint at it once, um, the color of the skin and that um, the uh, first-person narrator sees um, a reflection in the, in the panel that's pale, um, so they are white characters in my mind, and they are um, of a very particular class. They have enough money to hire um, cleaners, etc. Um, they're working professionals with enough time to, to go to doctors and to be taking lots of medications. So it's definitely a very particular satire. Um, something that's interesting, though, and I don't know if any of you caught this, because it's especially hard when you have a female voice reading um, the eye, but there is no gender marker for the protagonist or for Bot. Um, so Bot or Rob could be a man or a woman, and the eye in the in the story could be a man or a woman as well. Um, so there's there's some identity um, politics I'm playing with there, whether it's a um, heterosexual or homosexual couple. Um, but yeah, there is this very specific, I think, bourgeois sensibility I'm trying to critique. <laughs> I, mean, I think the first story is definitely meant to be cerebral insofar as these are people who are incredibly detached from their bodies, and that's kind of the point. Um, and I, I definitely wanted to convey that in the style. Um, in Furrow, I'm, I'm interested there actually in <clears throat> um, certain kinds of... Um, archetypal experiences, like going to the beach and burying your brother under the sand and, um, uh, you know, what you, what you do in a daily way 
um, and what kinds of um, rhythms that create and how that gets interrupted by the rhythm of a kind of traumatic event. Um, I, I'm not trying very hard to make that cerebral, um, so that may be just a, a, a fault in the, in the execution. Um, I think that there is a certain amount of, I'm, there's a certain amount of effort to make the rhythm of the language do something in that second piece. Um, and there the words that I'm using sort of matter less than the, the way in which I'm using them, um, I guess. Um, so that's what I would say about that. I do have different, I think, styles depending on the subject matter or, or what kind of feeling I'm trying to evoke um, depending on, on, the, on the subject matter. I mean, that's what we all feel, I think, as writers. It's like there's a kind of vision um, that you get, and you can get a vision wholesale of something, um, and trying to figure out the means to do it is part, part of what happens in the revision, I think. Um, with something like Bottoms Up, there, there wasn't anything more I wanted to convey. When I, when I read that story now, I feel like I said what I wanted to say. The uh, Tin House actually made me make the ending less dark um, in the original um, the um, male character dies from choking on the device, um, and they said that that was too dark. But so I sort of like made it so that well, he's off, on his way to the hospital. Maybe he'll die there, you know. Which um, <laughs> is a sort of concession to to the editors. Um, but in my like, there's nowhere else I want to take that story. Whereas when I'm reading Furrow, um, and as I've been revising it. This question of vision has been really present to me because it has a slightly experimental structure, which you wouldn't have gotten much of a hint of in what I read today. Um, but there are sort of iterations or repetitions in the first part. And I've been talking to my agent a lot about why that's part of my vision and why and whether it's working to convey my vision. Um, and we're not sure yet. You know, so it's, I mean, it's, it, it, I feel like all we do all the time as writers is try to find the language or the words or the way to convey this very um, impalpable, obscure thing that is the book in your head, you know. Um, but I don't think one should ever say, well, the, the idea is too big for that. That's part of the struggle. Okay, thanks, guys. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.